Every year, 300 million tons of plastic waste is produced, of which 11 million end up in the ocean. With plastics production set to double in the next 20 years, these trends will only get worse. Greenhouse gas emissions from plastics, for instance, are projected to account for 19% of the global carbon budget by 2040, compared with 3% today. Our current model of production, consumption and processing is not sustainable. But how can we move away from a single-use, take-make-waste approach and towards one that uses innovative solutions to eliminate pollution and circulate materials? This is Inside the Circle, a podcast from Economist Impact, exploring the circular economy in action. My name is Martin Curry, and I'm a Senior Manager and Regional Lead for the Sustainability, Climate Change and Natural Resources Practice Area. This podcast is supported by the Ellen MacArthur Foundation. In this episode, we will be unpacking the circular economy for plastics, the innovative upstream and downstream design solutions being pioneered and the policies and incentives needed to scale these up. But what does a circular economy for plastics actually entail? Sander de Freud, who leads the New Plastics Economy Initiative at the Ellen MacArthur Foundation, explains this by comparing it to the current linear system for plastics that many of us are familiar with. To define the circular economy for plastics, the, the easiest way is to compare it to today's linear economy. That's a take, make and waste economy where we take fossil fuel resources, so oil and gas out of the ground. We make plastics and plastic products out of these. And then we often after just one single use cycle, waste them by burning, landfilling uh, them or even worse, having them end up as, as litter. So such a linear economy is, is leading to many negative impacts environmentally on climate, biodiversity loss, pollution, but also socially and economically. And a circular economy is, is a completely different model where there is no waste and pollution as these are designed out from the start. And, and to realize such a circular economy for plastics, we need to eliminate, innovate and circulate. So we need to eliminate the plastics that we don't need. We need to innovate the plastics that we do need to ensure they're all reusable, recyclable or compostable. And finally, circulate all the plastics that we do use so that they're kept in the economy and out of the environment, landfills and incinerators. The plastics ecosystem can be broken down into two stages, upstream and downstream. The upstream stage includes all the efforts that happen before the product or the packaging reaches the end user. This involves product and packaging material design and the business and delivery models around it. The downstream stage refers to what happens to a product or packaging after the end user has used it and involves the processes of collecting, sorting, washing and reusing or recycling the waste. Transitioning to a circular economy for plastics is complex, but we have been making progress. A number of policy solutions have emerged to tackle the issue with varying impacts. One specific policy that had a huge impact on the global plastics recycling market was the Chinese National Sort Policy, which banned the import of foreign solid waste. Martin Dubois, Project Lead for Circular Economy and Plastics at the OECD, explains. So China uh, used to import all uh, recycled plastics. Um, and at a certain point, um, it was in different steps, so let's say somewhere between 2014 and 2018, China gradually closed its borders uh, for the import of waste that was collected for recycling that then had to be recycled in, in China. Many waste collectors uh, that had a business shipping plastics and plastics packaging towards uh, Asia suddenly had to find different solutions quite rapidly. 
And what happened is that you received a cascade because then uh, these traders uh, looked for other solutions. And so what you noticed was that uh, many of these countries started after a year closing their own borders. When dealing with these collected plastics, extended producer responsibility schemes or EPR schemes have proven to be key in putting the economic incentives in place for producers to collect, sort and recycle waste. What exactly are EPRs and how do they work? And producer responsibility means that producers do not just drop their products on the market, but they actually take responsibility for the end-of-life stage. Yeah, so that happens for packaging, it happens for electronics, for batteries. And actually, these, these producers, they kind of uh, collect a fee uh, at the start when they sell the product, and then they finance uh, recycling uh, at the end-of-life stage. The benefits of these schemes have been significant. Without them, collecting, sorting, and recycling activities cannot be scaled up. The cost of collecting, sorting, and recycling packaging is simply higher than the value of the material itself. So the economics don't stack up. And even many of the world's largest companies, those that would actually carry the majority of, of that cost through such an EPR policy, they themselves have publicly called for this policy because they all recognize that without it, packaging recycling is simply unlikely to ever meaningfully scale. Another approach that has been gaining traction is single-use plastics bans, which are currently in place in at least 60 countries. As Martin notes, while these have been beneficial for reducing the amount of plastics bags being consumed, they remain a very small part of the solution. The structural problem is that plastic bags are 0.5%, maybe maximum 1% of total plastics use. If you are focusing all your policy efforts on 1% of the plastics, you're not going to go very far. So yes, can be very good to stop littering. But if you look at the broader thing, the circular economy and the circular use of plastics, often these uh, policies fall short. In addition, the bans are very specific. You can only have bags that are so thick or minimum that thick eh, because then it's to encourage recycling. So, But of course, then what everybody does is, is re-optimize. Eh? All producers suddenly have bags which are either thicker or thinner, but it doesn't really stop uh, the, the use of, of bags. Third issue is related to the substitution to other materials. Plastics have certain externalities, but other materials also have this. Paper bags are not necessarily better than plastic bags. The big achievement is going for reuse, not going in so much in substitution by other materials. In that sense, the primary limitation of single-use plastics bans illustrates one of the three key issues characterizing the current policy environment, that it remains too narrow in scope. The second issue is that the regulatory and policy environment remains fragmented. Some of the current gaps and limitations with existing policy is that current policy efforts are, are very fragmented in the sense that they look very different across the world, even across US states or across EU member states or, or sometimes across cities. And in a plastics economy that's truly global and cross-border, this is not always conducive to an effective outcome for the system as a whole. Building on this, Claudia Amos, Technical Director for Plastics Technology Infrastructure and Commercial Due Diligence at Anthesis, explains that regulatory challenges differ by country, making circularity in supply chains tricky. The biggest obstacle in the supply chain um, is really creating commercially viable and sustainable reverse value chains, basically linking waste collection, preparation for recycling, the actual recycling infrastructure, and the quality of materials needed for remanufacture, 
all together. And it's a really complex system with huge variations across the globe. For example, in developing countries, it can be linking the formal and the informal collection systems to create price transparency and feedstock security to enable investment in all of these parts of the supply chain. In the more developed countries, it's often the regulatory frameworks to legislate certain technologies and output products or to trace recyclables through the system via mass balancing to avoid greenwashing. So really have a joint understanding of what can be labeled as recyclables, compostables, and joined up thinking across the different um, areas. The third issue is that policy instruments tend to be enabling rather than steering. With steering instruments, these are really the strong instruments. Think of economic incentives, uh, legal obligations. These instruments drive the market. Then they are enabling instruments, and they are very important. And then you should think more on communication. Um, innovation can also be one of them. So these are very important to build support and awareness about new regulation. At the same time, what we see is that many policies tend to herald um, enabling policy instruments on themselves and saying, like, okay, we are making people aware. Yes, but we also know that creating awareness is not enough. This episode is supported by the Ellen MacArthur Foundation. Let's hear from them on the circular economy. Circular Design for Fashion is a book published by the Ellen MacArthur Foundation, published at the end of 2021. And the book explores how creatives working in fashion can transform the industry that they love, shifting it from being a source of global challenges, such as climate change and biodiversity loss, to actually becoming part of the solution. We selected Fibershed for inclusion in the book as it shows how circular economy solutions can regenerate nature. Fibershed started when the founder, Rebecca Burgess, wanted to create a prototype wardrobe using local scales and fibres from just a 150-mile radius in California. And now Fibershed has become a grassroots global movement as there are similar projects all around the world, each with their own regional differences. Fibershed is a good example of the circular economy because waste and pollution from long international supply chains is largely eliminated. But perhaps most importantly, sourcing materials and making in this way really places an emphasis on the local ecosystem. The Fibershed concept showcases something called regenerative design. And that's not just about being a bit more efficient or doing a bit less bad per individual garment of clothing, but it's about the wider system, creating the right relationship with the land where the clothes come from. Fibershed aims to grow its impact through replication. So the aim isn't to have a one-size-fits-all model, but a vast number of regional supply networks using local dyes, local fibers, local labor, and celebrating regional diversity. Beyond policy developments, the transition to a circular economy for plastics has also been spurred by innovative solutions from actors across the plastics value chain. A lot of focus has been placed on downstream recycling solutions, and important progress has been made on this front. Research by Economist Impact found that mechanical recycling will remain the primary method for recycling, but that advanced recycling technologies, particularly chemical recycling, are well-placed for further development. 
These can complement mechanical recycling efforts and address its limitations and have the potential to produce higher quality and higher value output. But this technology will require further development, investment, and widespread collaboration across the value chain if it is to be scaled up. It's such a confusing sector because there are hundreds of different technologies and we are tracing those through our plastic hub where we are following the technical development as well as the, the manufacturing of the different plants. So at the moment, mechanical recycling presents about 90% of the, the plastics recycling today. It takes clean, single polymer plastic waste like a PET bottle, which is being washed, shredded and granulated into plastic pellets. And if the materials are clear and clean, then this can be recycled back into bottles or even be downcycled into street furniture, bin bags and so on. And then we got this really new and advanced recycling technologies, which can be put into three broad categories. There are purification technologies or solvation technologies, which use solvent based processes to process and extract the additives like dyes and inks to create clean polymer pellets from mixed color plastic waste like polyethylene films. So our typical films are packaging films. Um, as well from automotive and electronic goods. We got secondly decomposition or depolymerization technologies, which break the molecular bonds of the plastics to recover simpler molecules, monomers, from which the plastics are being made. And these are using a wide range of biological, chemical or thermal methods to break the bonds because plastics are good because they're quite durable and everything. So it takes a bit of effort to break those bonds back into the monomers. These decomposition technologies are really suitable for textile recycling, which is a huge problem. And then we have the final version, which is the conversion technologies, which are, for example, pyrolysis and gasification. And these take mixed plastics waste from different polymers, multi-layer films, and often residues from other plastic sorting or recycling processes, and breaks the bonds even further down into hydrocarbon. Policies, technologies, and other innovations need to tackle both the upstream and downstream stages. And Sander tells us why. It's absolutely crucial for upstream and downstream uh, efforts and innovations to, to work together because upstream choices very much determine what can be done with a product or a packaging after it's been used. If the packaging and business model are not designed for reuse, it will obviously never be reused. And if the packaging is not designed recyclable, it can never be recycled. Alan van der Molen, Chief Communications Officer at SC Johnson, a manufacturer of household cleaning supplies, puts this into a business context where targets around post-consumer recycled plastics, notably material that is made from the items that consumers recycle every day, also depend on the recycling systems in place. The key thing for us is making sure that we have PCR into our packaging, right? So right now, 19% of our plastic packaging is PCR. We've got a goal of 25% by 2025, and we're very confident we're going to hit it. The trick is the supply of PCR, which is not easy. Uh, and there's two components to that. There's the economics. Um, PCR plastic is 30% more than virgin plastic. And as a privately held company, we have the ability to swallow that, if not indefinitely, but certainly for a time. But we believe there's got to be a end market created for PCR. And that means we're going to have to have PCR at scale. 
And that gets into having the recycling infrastructure in place to separate, to clean, and then to get it into the process. So it's not simple, but that's really where our focus is. Currently, half of all plastics produced are designed to be single-use. So for Martin, boosting circular plastics innovations is a top priority. The first thing that's needed is, is boosting innovation. We made an analysis of patenting and, and where patenting is heading. And I'd say the positive side of the story is that more and more patents are focusing on uh, the circular use of plastics and, and in all kinds of domains uh, related to innovation and plastics. The negative thing is that it's still incredibly small if you compare to total plastics innovation. According to, once again, our research and, and the methodology that we set up, we find that only 1% of all plastics innovation is focused on the circular use of plastics. And so I think that's really a number one priority, getting innovation right. That said, there are some exciting developments in this space. Yeah, some of the top upstream innovations um, that have emerged and, and that have potential to, uh, to scale up are, on the one hand, a lot of new technologies that are enabling reusable packaging for a wide variety of products from beverages to detergents, etc. And, and these new technologies include digital technologies like mobile apps, QR codes, digital watermarks that enable models that companies like Algramo, who's partnering with, with Unilever and, and a few other companies are using where you can just scan your reusable bottle uh, refill it with as much kind of detergent as you want or as much as you can afford. And then a, a second kind of big category of, of innovations is around material innovations. And, and I'm thinking things like the edible coatings for fresh fruits and vegetables, which have the potential to eliminate a lot of the non-recyclable flexible packaging while still keeping those produce um, fresh. I just want to emphasize that the upstream innovation space is, is really huge. It goes far beyond just packaging innovation. It, it goes into rethinking the product itself or rethinking the entire business model or delivery model around it. So it, it's a huge space, also a hugely underexplored innovation opportunity. Louise Scott, Vice President of R&D Capability at Natura & Co., and Chief Scientific Officer at Avon Cosmetics, highlights the need to put these circular innovations into the broader context of climate and environmental action, while making it easier for consumers to make circular choices. I think it's really important for companies looking to adopt circular innovations in plastic products to, to start with sort of what that bigger ambition is. So, you know, for Natura & Co, um, we're sort of tackling these crises together through what we're calling our commitment to life. And that's a broad plan to tackle the planet's most urgent issues. Um, includes things like protecting the Amazon, addressing climate change, but it also it includes and encompasses the important aspect of circularity. You know, circularity in itself, uh, in my mind, is not sufficient. You need to think broadly about the impact that packaging has on carbon, for instance, and therefore you need to encompass it into your climate change goals. So that's, I think, the, the first step. Um, and then the second step, honestly, and this is, I think, one of the actions that should follow on making those broad commitments, is the notion of how does this then enable the customer, our consumer, to make that transition? So it's a first step of, of creating those commitments and then a second step of guiding our consumer to those more environmentally friendly choices. Pilots are also a key way to get the ball rolling. As we're trying to adopt the principles of circularity to our plastics use, 
the key thing is pilots that we can learn from and then we can scale. So for instance, we've got three good pilot projects going on with sporting teams. Um, the Liverpool Football Club, where we're collecting all the plastic bottles used at the stadium, and we're putting those into a recycling stream that is um, going into our Mr. Muscle packaging. We've got a similar program with the Milwaukee Brewers, which is a baseball team, and the Milwaukee Bucks, which is a National Basketball Association team, where we're collecting all the plastic at those places, where we turn it into packaging for our Scrubbing Bubbles um, products. He also highlights two key upstream innovations that SC Johnson is focusing on and where he thinks other businesses can follow suit. The two primary innovations where business can make an immediate impact and where we're focused are packaging innovation. So decreasing packaging overall, not just plastic. And I think we're you know on a good path there. We have a packaging scorecard for the corporation and we score things green, yellow and red. We're working right now to eliminate all of the packaging, which is red. We're also focused in product innovation. So uh, refill stations in Europe, our EcoVare brand in the United Kingdom, in the Netherlands and in Belgium is innovating right now with our retail partners for refill stations. In the United States, we're doing a lot of work in pods and in concentrates. Windex concentrate is, is a great example. In particular, you, know, you can reuse the, um, the sprayer or the pump you know, thousands of times. But upstream innovations are not limited to material innovations. They also include innovations in business models. Business model changes are critical to achieving a different circular economy and encouraging what I would call circular design. And, you know, these shifts need to happen both on the company side and on the consumer side. So as an example, I, I would take the body shop. Um, so the philosophy that we have is that, you know, every bottle or jar of product that the consumer reuses through refilling means less packaging is consumed. So on that principle, the body shop relaunched a pioneering product refill scheme. It was actually an innovator very early days of the business back in the, the 1970s with refills. And it's brought that back. And the central idea is to provide them a way to refill their bottles in store. And then every time they want to reuse, they come back and refill and they can interchange with different products. So there's up to 12 products available. And in fact, in 2021, I'm proud to say there are over 400 refill stations through the Body Shop stores. And there are, Body Shop is looking to expand by 300 more in 2022. In order to scale these up, however, simplifying and harmonizing language is an important next step for SC Johnson particularly if these new products are to have meaningful impacts on recycling rates. We're also really trying to simplify the language for consumers. If you do a search for package labeling and recyclability versus recycled, it's very confusing for consumers and the symbols that may or may not be on packaging, depending on the country you're in. So I would say a harmonization of the language of reuse and recycling is really important as we take this journey. Partnerships will also be crucial for this. Louise tells us about two of Natura Co's initiatives that demonstrate the importance of this. Back in 2019, actually, we sponsored a global challenge called the Natura Innovation Challenge, Zero Waste Packaging. And it was the largest open call innovation um, challenge in our history, which was really looking to solve waste generation and plastic pollution. 
And this brought together entrepreneurs, startups, researchers, universities, and that's what you need. You need that cooperative of many brains across many different sectors to be able to come up with solutions. And in fact, we identified more than 570 solutions that have the potential to rethink packaging and logistics and business models. So very exciting. And actually three projects were selected and now are now in testing. So that's the sort of effort I think that will create momentum. Equally, you know, we've got some great innovation going on in our separate brands. So just as an example, um, Natura recently launched a brand called Biome, which is a, a brand of beauty bar products with zero plastic. So we're not only innovating on replacing materials, we're also innovating on how do you actually create products that require much less consumption of packaging materials or potentially even zero in this case. You know, interestingly, a lot of this comes out of those sort of partnerships. So, you know, while we can work internally on these innovations, it's critical that we also partner externally. And uh, the particular example that I gave you of Biome is a result of Natura's partnership with California startup Mango Materials, which is a pioneer in development of new materials with a positive impact on the planet. So it's not just about circularity in this case, it's also about regeneration. For Claudia, designing supply chains for newer recycling technologies is also important. Currently, our reverse supply chains are very much designed for mechanical recycling, which is the most cost-efficient and low-carbon form of recycling, so definitely would like to keep it. But for the newer technologies, we might not need as much sorting. We might not need as much washing and cleaning and preparation And currently they're paying for it. So they're being disadvantaged for getting a very clean material that they don't really need because alternative supply chains have not really been set up. So sometimes it's not so much about adding more sorting and adding more sophistication. It's also about stepping back and thinking about what are the right waste collection systems, sorting systems to fit different technologies. And, and that is really the crux to develop these new reverse supply chains and the logistic and sorting that fits the final product, the final technology, and works them alongside efficiently with our existing waste system. What is clear is that there is no silver bullet solution. Different instruments need to be used alongside one another and business solutions need to engage policymakers and consumers alike. EPRs, for instance, have the potential to support upstream innovation, but fee structures need to be revised to encourage eco-designs. The positive thing is the scale focus on recycling. The disadvantage is that you typically get uniform fees. Everybody pays the same for kind of the, the, the same type of packaging. It's even worse when you think of electronics. Eh? Like There are so many different types of electronics, but everybody pays more or less the same fee. And because there is everybody pays the same fee, there is no direct financial incentive to actually make your product more circular. And so that's where the, the new evolution in EPR is looking for. And at the moment, there's a lot of experimentation. Eh? France was one of the first, but now Canada, Portugal, many other, Italy and many other countries are experimenting uh, with this. Uh, in order to strengthen the regulation and improve these eco-design effects of external producer responsibility. In addition to EPR, another economic incentive can come from rewards for innovation. I think the second piece of regulation, which has not been focused on as much, is a regulatory framework that rewards innovation. 
and that rewards innovation for scalable recycling and waste management solutions. So we think it's government incentives, whether they're tax breaks or what have you for innovators, and at the same time, taxes and fees applied to producers. The development of international standards is also crucial. The really important thing about uh, product standards is upstream. So in a certain way, the most efficient material is a material that you don't use. From an environmental perspective, it's still the most energy efficient one. You don't even need to treat it. And so product norms can really contribute uh, to this. Probably my biggest ask for policies is international standards for mass balancing or tracing the recycled materials through the plastic supply chain. So we as a consumer or as a business can really understand and can make an informed decision about what we buy and how this impacts our carbon footprint. In the end, plastics recycling is another form of manufacturing. So we need, in an equal way, we need to agree on principles, sustainability standards, material standards, product standards, like for any other product as well. It's just a bit more complex because so many different sources and different types of manufacturing processes to create these products. Targets have also been crucial, as these can help incentivize the use of recycled materials or disincentivize the use of virgin plastics. One of the things that many of these upstream actions have in common is that they are all resulting in reducing the use of virgin materials. So any kind of disincentives for using virgin material could be one way to incentivize these new technologies, thinking about shifting taxes from labor to virgin resource reuse, for example. Another route could be setting targets, um, virgin reduction targets, or like France did, also kind of specific reusable packaging targets for the country. But infrastructure inconsistencies can complicate efforts towards achieving circularity. Targets need to be set around this too. I see targets as being really critical to achieving a circular economy. Our core targets are centered around creating products that are really designed from the beginning to be more sustainable. So for us, it means ensuring full packaging circularity by 2030, guaranteeing 100% of our packaging materials are either reusable, recyclable or compostable. And in addition to that, reducing the amount of packaging material in absolute that we use by 20% and guaranteeing that 50% of all of our plastic uh, used is recycled material. One of the things to think about here, though, is that we have to be realistic that the infrastructure to enable full circularity is not in place in many of our markets, and it's unlikely to be by 2030. So we're also committing to reach 100% responsible disposal of plastics. We are going to look for every uh, bottle that is in a market where that packaging cannot be collected because the infrastructure does not exist. We're going to offset through a collection and reuse program, the equivalent amount of packaging so that we are compensating for that lack of infrastructure where it doesn't exist. An international treaty on plastics, which is what the UN Environment Assembly meeting is working toward, would elevate these targets even further and help level the plastics playing field. A global treaty on plastics that's currently um, you know, very high on the agenda and being discussed could really help accelerate that policy development uh, on plastics around the world because it could set a very clear goals and a clear direction for, for the entire world to follow. 
international organizations like the UNEA can really support efforts to build a circular economy for plastics. And in fact, it's great to see that the environmental impact of packaging waste, particularly in the marine environment, is front and center on the UNEA 5 agenda this year. And I hope this agenda will bring to focus the need to improve waste collection and waste handling. The infrastructure often does not exist. And as well as putting legislative mechanics in place to increase investment in recycling infrastructure, making circularity viable is very complex. However, voluntary agreements alone are not enough, right? We need policymakers to play a critical role in creating the right conditions and encouraging progress. A global treaty for a circular economy of plastics is really the necessary next step if we are going to scale the voluntary agreements already in place. In conclusion, the solutions are there. From innovative product designs and delivery models to circular business partnerships and groundbreaking advanced recycling technologies. The challenge and opportunity is how to support these innovations with a combination of effective policy tools, such as extended producer responsibility schemes. That's it for this episode. Plastics is a complex but crucial industry and is illustrative of the much larger challenge we have in front of us if we are to truly transition into a circular economy. In our next episode, we will explore another equally important sector, food. For more information, log on to impact.economist.com forward slash sustainability. Thanks again to the Ellen MacArthur Foundation for supporting this program.